she was super fun to talk to and she is wicked smart and i just love uh every, everything that we chatted about so we'll we'll drop that in here i know you guys hate it when i intro things like that i know you do i'm so <laughs> sorry i was waiting for you to say yeah it. i i just feel like you're so terrible at that i'm so sorry <laughs> we'll drop it in here so we'll just insert that interview in right here <laughs> oh my god please please include anna's uh just impression of rue there oh my god that was so good <laughs> no it was not oh Oh, it really was. Uh, We're just going to drop that in here. <laughs> that is not how I sound. <laughs> that is not how I sound. You people are terrible. <laughs> oh, dear. So I think we should address the um, funny reviews that we've been getting recently. Oh, my gosh. These are so good. Please, please. I don't know which one to put on a T-shirt, but one of them is going on a T-shirt. <laughs> less less boring than I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Basically, we've had quite a few reviews that just say, like, I'm enjoying this way more than I thought I would. <laughs> and I did not expect to enjoy this podcast as much as I do. And I look forward to new episodes each week. <laughs> <laughs> what I want is to ask people to leave a review about how surprisingly entertaining this podcast is. <laughs> and the winner will essentially go on a T-shirt. Yeah, random but memorable, exceeding expectations since 2018. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot. I also, I enjoyed the, it, it's similarly in that vein. Uh, we've had, we had one where a guy said like, oh, I just love falling asleep to your podcast every night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. I retweeted that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, does he does he do it like in the middle? Like, is he where, at what point is he falling asleep? Maybe like first ten minutes. Maybe this bit. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I like to think that it's just our wonderful voices that sort of rock people to sleep. We should do a uh, random but memorable bedtime story edition some night, oh, like Matthew McConaughey, like Matthew McConaughey and Calm. Oh man, maybe we should do it in Matthew McConaughey's voice or Stephen Fry. Matt, you've got to be Stephen Fry. Listen, that leaves me as McConaughey, and let's be honest, <laughs> I ain't no McConaughey. <laughs> <laughs> right, shall we get into a bit of Watchtower Weekly? Yes, let's do it. Uh, it is worth noting that since the last podcast recording, both Facebook and Microsoft have been found to have humans listening in to Skype calls, Cortana recordings, and the Facebook Messenger app. I listened to the last episode. Did you? <gasps> you actually listened to an episode. I'm I'm so happy. I'm so proud. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. I, I can see why people are so impressed with us. <laughs> Surprisingly so. I enjoyed it way more than I thought I would. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I really loved and appreciated the way you handled it, Matt, where you're like, well, we are just rabbit apple fanboys on this podcast we assumed that apple wasn't doing this uh either but they are so we were wrong <laughs> yeah yeah that was pretty bad i i'm not the biggest microsoft fanboy but i did kind of assume that you know skype was safe from this kind of thing me too listening into skype calls why would you do that what is the point it, it, because i don't understand what the benefit of having humans listening to Skype calls is because there is no... It was to do with their automated uh, translation feature. I see. So it, it wasn't just like normal calls. They were trying to do things that were smart with that and then teach themselves how to do it, basically. I find it interesting as well how Microsoft have been the ones that kind of taken more of a stance in the opposite way where they've said, actually, we're going to continue with this processing to improve, you know, the AI accuracy. Whereas even Facebook have 
paused human review and as we said last week you know apple and google and amazon have all put a stop to this at least for the meantime yeah i mean it's it's a little weird that they're like oh we disclosed it in our you know skype translator faq and cortana documentation and stuff like that that we use you know automatic transcripts and and things that are built into our system and i'm like yeah you know i feel like opting into that is better than opting out but of course that's that's not how these services seem to go. No, certainly not. I wonder if we're going to start to see legislation around this similar to how there's there's legislation around like the email newsletter list, right? Like in Canada, we can't have email newsletters be opt-out. They have to be opt-in. Double opt-in. Double opt-in, yeah. This seems like I wouldn't be surprised if this was headed for the same thing. The interview with Anne, which obviously you'll hear a bit later, but I think she described the Internet of Things as the Wild West, which seems like a pretty accurate analogy to me anyway yeah for sure yeah that that is interesting so um let's talk about biostar and uh the the security software that leaked a million fingerprints the uh the interesting thing here is of course you can't change your fingerprint this is just out there i mean you can erase your fingerprints with enough sandpaper (laughs) i think that's a that's a bit of an overreaction (laughs) i mean it might not be (laughs) <laughs> as well as fingerprint records, they found photographs of people, facial recognition data, uh, names, dresses, passwords as well, employment history. Yeah, it's pretty terrible, especially as the the company is essentially supposed to be a, a cybersecurity firm. I don't know what they were thinking. This one is, is so interesting to me because in the world of, of Touch ID, your fingerprint never leaves your device. That's been the norm in my head for the longest time. And so having other places that, that sort of send fingerprints around and store them in the store them on their own service and, and whatnot, I was kind of like, really? People actually do this? Well, one of the reasons why they've done this in, in this case was because, you know, they're using fingerprints to open doors. So it kind of has to do something there, right? True. Yeah, that's true. I mean, just how they treated the researcher was, was pretty crazy. It was in total 23 gigabytes of data and nearly 30 million records. Uh, found exposed online. It's used by over 5,700 organizations in 83 countries um, and some of the biggest multinational businesses. Even the UK Metropolitan Police use it. Yeah, it's 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 pretty terrible. Yeah, I found it crazy as well how this researcher, or one of the researchers that found this vulnerability, he actually tried you know, to get in touch with Suprema. And he said, we started calling all the officers one by one and had to deal with people just hanging up the phone. <laughs> like, hi, I have I have a vulnerability to report. Click. Yep. <laughs> nope, no, you don't. Nope. Don't know anything about that. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> but it's crazy. I hear about this all the time. Like when I was researching the Talk Talk hack, obviously the hackers were just a bunch of teenagers but when they found the vulnerability at first i don't think they intended really to do harm and they tried to report it to talk talk themselves and just talk talk weren't interested so this seems to kind of come up a lot i mean people contact us about vulnerabilities uh with with one password and, and we're always very kind of open about how we deal with that it takes quite a lot of resource to to invest into looking into these things obviously you know we're fairly good about it but I can kind of understand why if you if you run someone at like a, you know, mid-level in a security company that they'd just be like, no, <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not going to deal with this one. But, you know, just the fact that this was so dangerous to them, I don't know how they avoided it or, you know, ignored it. Uh, so moving on, 
The Verge has reported on a Bluetooth vulnerability that could expose device data to hackers. A fast-acting hacker could be able to weaken the encryption of Bluetooth devices and subsequently snoop on communications or send falsified ones to take over a device due to a newly discovered vulnerability. Some people are calling it a knob vulnerability, which I, I think is also quite amusing. <laughs> <laughs> the key negotiation of Bluetooth. Oh, the knob attack. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I feel like it's the worst technology in the world. The thing that I find freaky about this one, for me personally, is that Bluetooth is, is a sort of an ever-evolving standard. And I feel like you don't go back and patch old Bluetooth specs. So if you have an older Bluetooth device, I always tend to think about the age of, of some of my Bluetooth devices that I have kicking around. I'm like, I wonder if this thing is actually still still safe to use i wonder how many people actually update any kind of firmware i bet it's really low percentages oh it's got to be so so low these these kind of hardware devices um i mean we saw it a couple of weeks ago with the the logitech dongle that's right that had a a a really bad vulnerability and how how many people are really going to update the firmware on that so how does bluetooth actually work so like each time two bluetooth devices connect they establish a new encryption key between them and then from there on out the the transmission between the devices is then encrypted but if an attacker gets in between that setup process uh they could trick the two devices into settling on an encryption key with a relatively small number of characters uh, which then is vulnerable to a brute force attack and sort of you know figuring out the exact password and stuff like that so not every device is vulnerable right Uh, this flaw only applies to traditional bluetooth devices not bluetooth low energy which is frequently used in low power devices like wearables um some devices may have protection against it if they have a hard-coded minimum password strength again like hard-coded minimum password strength this does not say to me that this stuff can necessarily fix it in fact that yeah anna your your next note the organization behind bluetooth can't fix the flaw but it'll protect against it going forward so all these devices that are out in the wild right now there's all these devices that are vulnerable with no real way forward to have this stuff fixed. Mm. It's crazy. It is worth pointing out that it is a very narrow window of attack. Like it would have to be in range and repeat the attack every time they wanted to break in. And it would be like within the initial transition window. But it, you know, it's still kind of terrifying because Bluetooth is on like every laptop nowadays. Yeah. And my mid-2013 MacBook Pro has older bluetooth than everybody else like who you know who knows what's what's going on there i'm just going to put all of my bluetooth devices in a magnetically shielded bag and bury it in the woods and call it a day i do love all your extreme reactions on this podcast so far as well <laughs> are you going to sand off your fingerprints and bury your bluetooth devices in the woods i like it yeah so do we have do we have a guest this week? We do. We have an excellent guest this week. I'm so excited for this. This was a good interview. I, I had fun with this one. You you uh, you two were were unavailable. So Dr. Ann Kavukian and I uh, grabbed some time and 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 had a really nice chat. Joining us today is Dr. Ann Kavukian. Dr. Ann Kavukian has had. You, you've had quite the career. You are recognized as one of the world's leading privacy experts. Uh, you are the former Information and Privacy Commissioner for Ontario. Uh, you just ended uh, your tenure as the leader of the Privacy by Design Center of Excellence at Ryerson University. And as of July 1st, you are the new Executive Director of the Global Privacy and Security by Design Center, uh, which is a firm that you've started yourself. You are also uh, one of the top 25 women of influence and top 10 women in data security and privacy 
Holy cow. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm a bit of a crazy person, but I love what I do. And this is the time to get the messaging out to everyone to raise awareness on how you can have privacy and security, privacy and marketing. You can do everything. It's not one versus the other. We have to abandon zero-sum models. And, and I think that that's really, you know, diving right into it, that has been the viewpoint for everyone, right? I can either, ev everyone's data can either be an open book for me, and I can sort of make decisions based on that and, and you know, run analytics and stuff, or I can be private by design and lose all of that. And that's, you're saying that's not the case. Exactly, because whenever it's... Um, one versus the other, privacy versus security or privacy versus business interests. It's not a privacy that wins, nor am I suggesting that privacy should win over these other interests. But I sure as heck, I'm not going to have it lose out every time. And it's because of the dated zero-sum model of you can only have one versus the other, a win-lose proposition. Get rid of that. That is so yesterday. Positive sum means you can have positive, multiple positive gains at the same time. Privacy and not privacy versus. That's that's amazing. I want I want to take a little bit of a step back. We've dove right into it. I want to give you a chance to sort of tell people a little bit, sort of how you arrived at where you are today, and and, and sort of some more of your background and everything else. Of course, uh, I was very fortunate to be the privacy commissioner of Ontario, Canada for actually three terms, 17 years. It was long. No one else has lasted three terms <laughs> because it was so, so unbelievably important to raise awareness of the importance of privacy when surveillance interests were growing dramatically. And so I wanted very much to raise awareness of these issues, but also I created Privacy by Design early on, I mean, in the late 90s. And I did that, I mean, I literally at my kitchen table over three nights because I wanted to show people, I don't want you just to view privacy in terms of regulatory compliance, which always comes after the fact, after the data breach or privacy infraction. Then you go to the commissioner who investigates and offers a remedy. I mean, that's very important, but it's, in my view, it was too little, too late. I want to prevent the privacy harms from arising, much like a medical model of prevention. Let's address privacy issues, embed much-needed privacy protective measures into the design of our operations proactively so that you can prevent the privacy harms from arising altogether. Bake it into the code, bake it into the data architecture, into your policies. That was my goal. So I was very fortunate in being able to do that and build on that during my three terms as privacy commissioner. And then it just, you know, the interest in privacy by design grew dramatically because in 2010, it was unanimously passed as an international standard by the International Assembly of Privacy Commissioners and Data Protection Authorities. And then last year, the new law came into effect in the European Union, the General Data Protection Regulation. The first time, they included my Privacy by Design framework in the law itself, Privacy by Design and Privacy as the Default all part of Privacy by Design. So word of Privacy by Design has just been growing dramatically and I couldn't be more pleased. That's wonderful. So if we look at centralized data, which is something that tech giants like Google and Facebook have, right? Just these large data stores of, of, of customer information. They seem to serve as sort of honeypots for surveillance and tracking. How do we move away from that? How do we sort of escape that, that model? That's exactly what they do. And unfortunately, when you have this huge honeypot of personally identifiable data under the control of these companies, you know, Facebook and Google, the individual loses all control over the information. 
it's, you know, privacy's gone. I, I always tell people privacy is all about personal control. It's not about secrecy. It's about individuals, data subjects having control over the information relating to them. That control is non-existent in this centralized model of the honeypots. The way we move away from that, and this is happening increasingly, is we have to create decentralized data sets and decentralized models of information. You may recall that just over a year ago, Tim Berners-Lee went public and he said, I'm devastated at what I've created in the World Wide Web. It's a centralized model of personal data that is controlled by companies and completely out of the control of the individuals to whom the information relates. He said, I'm devastated by that and I'm going a different way the way of decentralization, he created something called solid, and increasingly you will find that all kinds of decentralized data sets that reside securely in a secure enclave in the cloud, for example, which fall under the direct control of individuals, the data subjects themselves. Wow, that's really interesting. So how does that align with the way that companies like Facebook and Google are doing business today? Or how can they, how can they play into that world? Because going back to what we talked about at the beginning, that does feel very much like a like an either or sort of proposition for a company. It will take some time, I assure you, to get the uh, Facebooks and Googles out of the centralized pot. You, you've seen what's happened with uh, Facebook, for example, not only the $5 billion fine from the Federal Trade Commission in the U.S., but also people are now leaving Facebook. And they are very concerned, understandably, so they're singing a different tune now. All of a sudden, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is saying, yeah, the future is private. So he's now to building privacy into their operations. If he walks his talk, great. You know, I always say, judge people by what they do now. But wait and see. He's got to walk the talk. So we'll see what direction this takes. Indeed. Indeed. So if we look at today's systems, the things that are out there today, what do the threats to our identity look like? Well, you know, the problem is once your identifying information is accessed and done so in a manner without your positive uh, consent, you don't have control over that data. And as you know, face recognition is growing dramatically. There are cameras everywhere. CCTV cameras are growing. And the police have body cams that they're wearing, etc. Um, your home might have a Nest. Uh, you know, Nest is, is a camera that captures whoever comes to your door. There, that's now merging with the police. So police now are going to have access to anyone who is walking by your home or coming to your door. So you've got all of these various applications where your personal information is being captured and used in manners that you had no awareness of, that you certainly hadn't consented to. And once your identifying information is out there, there's not much you can do about it. And the problem is, especially with facial recognition, for example, facial recognition, people think it's 100% accurate. Nothing could be further from the truth. There's a very high percentage of what's called false positive, where you are falsely identified as being so-and-so, a person of interest to the police, for example, where you're not. It's a mistake. And this ranges to from 60 to 80%. There's huge mistakes right now. So try to clear your name. If you are identified incorrectly as a person of interest and the police come knocking at your door. I remember when I was a privacy commissioner, a number of victims of identity theft came to me. And your life is in ruins until you can clear your name if your identity has been stolen. And this is the problem with having your identifying information out there without your control. It can be stolen. You can be victimized. I always used to tell people victims of identity theft, 
the first thing you should do is go to the police. Call the police and file an occurrence report. So there's at least something to substantiate your claim that, you know, when the credit card company's calling and you say, no, no, I didn't, those aren't my charges. I didn't cause those charges. Someone else stole my identity. Why would they believe you? So these are the problems people have to deal with. Identity theft is huge. Yeah, I can I can see that. And it, and it's a growing problem. I mean, it, you see it all the time today. You know, there's always new cases of, of, of identity theft and, and people being notified that their data has been stolen or, or you know, otherwise accessed through a breach. And those are just, you know, active breaches. But the, like you said, there's, there's all this passive data collection going on that people aren't necessarily even aware of. Going back to privacy by design which, as you mentioned, you created in your kitchen table in the 90s uh, <laughs> and is now part of, of the laws of the European uh, GDPR regulations. Can you talk a little bit more about your thinking behind it and what you were really hoping it would accomplish when you when you sat down all those years ago? I really wanted privacy to be embraced in, in the concept of sort of design thinking, that you address this up front proactively, you don't just create the whatever you're working on. Like think of internet of things. There is no privacy or security on that. It's like the wild west, the running out the door, creating these these honeypots that are gonna cause so much trouble and already there's causing trouble. I wanted the exact opposite. I wanted companies to proactively address the privacy concerns so that upfront when you're collecting personal information, Usually what happens is the first instance of the data collection of personal information you know, has been thought out and hopefully you've obtained a positive consent from the data subject to use the information for that particular purpose, which is called the primary purpose of the data collection. Great. What happens after that? I tell companies, you need a data map. You need to map the flow of personal information throughout your organization so you can address when you need to obtain additional consent, for example, you have to be able to navigate the flow of data throughout your organization, and usually that's non-existent. So if you were following privacy by design, you would have addressed this. You've got the primary purpose of the data collection. You obtain positive consent for it. Everything is good. Then under privacy by design, you wouldn't be able to use that information for any other uses unless you went back to the data subject, if there was a secondary use, for example, and obtain their positive consent for the secondary use. What I have found with companies is that when you have very strong privacy like this, you build a trusted business relationship. And then when you need additional consent for secondary uses and you go back to the individuals to obtain that consent, they always say yes, because you build that trust. There's a solid foundation of trust. Other things with privacy by design. Privacy as the default is the second foundational principle, which was also included in the new EU GDPR. Privacy as the default says to individuals, don't worry, you don't have to ask us to protect your privacy. We give that to you automatically. Privacy is the default setting, meaning it's embedded in our operations. You don't have to ask for it. We give it to you automatically. I can't tell you what a game changer that is, with individuals, data subjects, they love it. And it builds trust like no other. Another part of privacy by design is it's all about privacy and security, not one versus the other. You see, while the term privacy subsumes a much broader set of protections than security alone, in this day and age of daily cybersecurity attacks, if you don't have a solid foundation of security from end to end with full life cycle protection, you're not going to have any privacy. So that's another essential component of privacy by design. And then, of course, give 
data subjects access to their data. I tell both companies and governments, you may have custody and control of someone's data, but it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the customer. So please give them access to their own data. And what companies have told me is that they love this because by allowing data subjects to have access to their own data, they, the company, is alerted to mistakes that they may have made. You know, companies have thousands and thousands of customers and data subjects. They're not going to be aware if there's a mistake of how they capture some information or that. But the individual knows what's correct and what's not relating to his or her data. So companies have told me that this is a huge benefit to them because it enhances the quality of their data enormously. So that's the essentials of privacy by design. I would say, you know, to me, it's like motherhood, of course, um, but it's all in the delivery of it, how you actually embed this into your operations. It can take a hundred different forms as long as you do it proactively upfront. One of the things that, that sort of struck me as you were as you were going through the tenants is how much of this at the outset is policy based. You know, I tend to think as, as a software developer myself of how to enforce everything at a code level. But really, there's so much culture and policy that needs to be instilled before you can even get people to think about how to do things from a, a programmatic point of view or a mathematical point of view. And that's that's so that's so fascinating. So how do you make privacy by design the standard. It sounds like it does. It starts as a policy change. Absolutely. Because if it's captured as a policy change, again, you have to get the buy-in of the CEO and the senior executives. Once they buy into that, then the rest will flow from that. Because if, if we're saying, you know, get rid of the silos, everyone's got to talk to each other, then the management of the company will ensure that happens. I talk like this a lot. And at the beginning, years ago, I called it the year of the engineer and I went around talking almost exclusively to engineers and data scientists to make sure that what I was saying was viable. Everyone said, you know, of course it's viable. We can do this. You know, they're they're smart. They're confident. They said, we're not the problem. You have to go talk to them. And what they meant by that was they'll be asked, the, the computer group, the tech group will be asked to write some code for a program. They'll write the code, they'll deliver it. And then when they deliver it, the person who asked for it says, oh, can you bolt on a privacy solution? <laughs> right. You know, the, the software folks say, okay, I mean, we can do our best, but it's never going to be as good as if we had seamlessly integrated into the entire operation. So that's why it's critical that once the policy of we need to do this is accepted, then it has to be embedded throughout the whole operation. And there's a whole field of privacy engineering that is growing now dramatically, which is all about privacy engineering brings privacy by design to life. Because then you've got the engineers and the tech software people, etc., embracing this in a way that enables it to be enacted right from the beginning. Do you think that we have a long way to go to get this, to get privacy by design as the standard for companies? You know, it's not that I think we have a long way to go. Um, ever since uh, just over a year ago when the GDPR came into effect, I've been getting more calls from people wanting to do privacy by design and they want to be certified. So we're offering privacy by design certification for the past mm-hmm. five years because they want to show people that they're doing it and they're doing it properly. So it's not that I'm afraid of that. What I'm more concerned about is the massive growth of surveillance on the part of both private and public sector entities. Uh, You may not see it as clearly in the public sector, but it's there. It's very, very strong. And that's what concerns me, is that they want to know, the government wants to know everything that they can about how people are doing things and 
these are the concerns that keep me up at night because it's one thing to get companies interested in this and publicly governments will tell you they're interested in this as well. But I know privately having served as as privacy commissioner for three terms and there was a different political party in place each term, everybody wants, everybody's in favor of privacy until they become the government. And then once they become the government, everything changes and know whatever they can about people and their interests and what they're doing. So um, I'm not going to suggest this is a cakewalk. Uh, We have a challenging task before us. So how do we build trust in this data tracking age? And and, and I think when we say we, I, I look at that as like from a private company point of view, like what allows people to feel like they can trust how their data has been being handled. So as you know, there's a huge trust deficit right now. It's never been greater. And in the last four or five years, all of the public opinion polls, Pew Research, Internet, etc., have all come in at the 90 percentile for concern for privacy. I mean, I've been in this business well over 20 years. I have never seen concern for privacy to be so high and consistently to be so high. Now, the only good news about that is if you're a company and you embrace privacy and you follow privacy by design and you actually walk your talk, I always tell companies who come to me to get certified for privacy by design, I tell them, shout it from the rooftops. Don't keep this to yourself. Let your customers know the lengths you're going to to protect their privacy, how much you respect their personal information and their privacy. Individuals, customers love this. And they will bend over backwards to support you. You build loyalty among the customers you have. It attracts new opportunity, new clients. The customers you have tell their friends and their family and colleagues. And it just makes everything grow in terms of your business operations. And so I encourage people to do this because, as you said, there is such a trust deficit right now. And trust is waning You need to build that in your company. You want to grow your operations. This is the way to do it. That's what I always encourage people to do. Dr. Kavukian, uh, it has been awesome to talk to you today. Do you have any closing tips or final takeaways or anything that you want to offer up to our listeners? I just want to remind people, privacy forms the foundation of our freedom. You cannot have free and democratic societies without a solid foundation of privacy. So the next time someone says to you, you know, well, why should I care about my privacy? You say, if you care about freedom, which we fortunately can take largely for granted right now, then you care about privacy. We need to ensure that privacy is respected. And again, privacy is not about secrecy. It's about control, personal control over the uses of your information. I always tell people, privacy is not a religion. You want to give away your information? Be my guest, as long as you make the decision to do that, not someone else on your behalf. So let's make sure that we can preserve privacy now and well into the future. That is a fantastic ending point. Dr. Kavukian, if people wanted to find you online or, or, or look up, <laughs> find you online after we just finished talking about privacy, if they wanted to, to uh, visit your website or learn a little bit more about the Global Privacy and Security by Design Center, where should they go? That's literally where they should go. The website is gpsbydesigncenter.com. Wonderful. We'll make sure to include a, a link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much again for your time. Oh, it was my pleasure. And give my best to Anna. Will do for sure. Well, listen, that was a great interview, uh, if I do say so myself. Uh, should we dive into our, our giveaway for this week? I honestly think for the next giveaway, what we should do is if you tweet us and you can optionally leave your review as a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, 
it has to be that you didn't think that you would like it, but then you liked it. <laughs> that's that's the format. You you can use any wording you like, but that has to be the format. Uh, and then we'll we'll pick some winners and uh, and and send out some t-shirts. But what if we get like so many reviews all saying that they didn't expect to like the podcast? <laughs> but I think that's so good. Like two is funny and a bit coincidental, but like No, I want at least 30. I, I want at least 30 just going, ah, oh, I mean, I, I had apprehensions going in, but it was all right. <laughs> all right, you two. Uh, what the phrase this week, huh? What the phrase? Rue, I'm going to hand it over to you on this one because this was requested by you a few weeks ago. Um, it's true. I sent you a whole collection of things where I was like, these would be great to talk about. You text me in the middle of the night mm-hmm. and I was like, damn, yep. One of these has got to be on the podcast. Yeah, okay. So (laughs) I found a collection of Victorian phrases, uh, sorely missed Victorian slang from Adam C. Sharp on Twitter. Um, And this one really, really struck me. Uh, Tight as a boiled owl. I mean, I don't want to say anything too rude. I feel like it's either two things. It's either going to be that you are uh, financially frugal as in, they don't spend any money. You're tight as a boiled owl. Yeah. yeah, no, we we got what financially frugal means. Tonight. You don't have to like <laughs> dumb it down for us. <laughs> I think it is. Yeah, financially frugal. Actually, you can be drunk as a boiled owl, and that's what this is. Tight as a boiled owl is drunk. I think the actual phrase is drunk as a boiled owl, though. Well, I mean, it sounds like it's evolved since Victorian, since the Victorian era. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's probably got simpler. <laughs> I, I feel like we have to say goodbye then. All right, love you, Matt. Love you, Anna. Love you, Rue. Uh, love you, Rue. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye, bye. Bye.